The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. I'd like to welcome Leo Morn from Tune, who is with us today. Leo is a songwriter, singer and guitarist, and one of the founding members of the Saw Doctors. Welcome to the show, Leo. Thank you, Simon. I'm delighted to be here with you across Europe. Across Europe, yes. I'm in Madrid and Leo's in Tune. So tell us, Leo, are you holed up there in the house in Tune? Are you getting out of it? Yeah, we're taking the... the um lockdown fairly seriously here myself and Eleanor because I know I probably shouldn't be admitting this but we we kind of like it we enjoy the fact that it's simple um, and we're getting back to values and a way of life that we probably wouldn't have known otherwise because I've been a devil I love going places we but we all do and uh, I I've always loved doing things and going places so I probably I'm not inclined to take things easy and sit back and be with myself so the lockdown has has allowed us to do that and and allowed me to just relax and get very lazy and do a lot of reading and just just be very relaxed and do a lot of a lot of uh, sitting around that i have never really done before catching up on life a little bit no yeah, I, and I, I like the idea that it's really calm and we don't have to be in a hurry doing anything. We don't have to do anything much. Uh, the shops are open. We can have a glass of wine. We can read the books, watch the telly. We're cleaning out the shed. We're going to put a roof on the shed now from now, between now and Christmas. So we've plenty for doing, but it's nice and contained and relaxed and in a way that we probably wouldn't do otherwise. Yeah, it's. I think what it is for a lot of people, it's a, a slower pace. You know, like, for example, if people had the stations coming up, but I don't know, do people still have the stations? The thing is, when you used to have the stations, you know, I remember it used to be funny. Your mother would be like, oh, we have to do up the house. And, you know, the neighbors would be all around and it was like getting everything ready for them. And now it's kind of like spring cleaning all year with this COVID thing, because we all have this extra time and we'd say, oh, what projects will I do? Will I paint the house? Will I put the roof in the shed, what will I do? There's so much we can do, we're stuck in the house, no? Yeah, I, a friend of mine works in the garden centre in Tube and I was asking him, he's still working, and I was asking him, have things changed much for him? And he said, oh, he said, don't talk to me. He said, all the farmers are going into their sheds and they're coming in here with old chainsaws <laughs> and stuff to get fixed. He said, a fella came in there last week, he said, with five different bits of things he found in the shed to get fixed. <laughs> he said it was a day's work, you know, it's got, uh, this is happening all the time. You know those things the farmers and the, the fellas put away and the, the wife says, why don't you throw that out? And he's like, yeah. no, 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 that'll, that'll come in handy one day now, I'll keep that. And now is the moment when they're like, well, I'll bring it into, you know, Murphy's or one of these places to get it fixed. Yeah, and it just happens to be sitting in the shed for 18 years and it's a small bit rusty but it, you know it might go again so you never yeah, know yeah, it's yeah. worth the go 
I'm like that with my wife. You know, she'll say, what's in that box? It's full of junk. And I'm like, no, no, they're bits. I don't know what they're for, but one day they'll come in useful. And then maybe like two years later, I'm looking, I'm doing something. I'm being a bit of a MacGyver and I'm fixing something. And I say, oh, I know there's a thing in the box. And I go in the box and I find that washer or whatever it is. And I said, there, I told you, <laughs> it has its use. And she's. Well, you're a bit exceptional there now because most people keep it, but they don't know where they kept it and they don't remember that they kept it. <laughs> That's true. And the easiest thing to do is go and buy another one. <laughs> <laughs> go buy another one, yeah. But what I do is I have, it It might be a bit of something like, um, you know, it's crazy because when I came here to Madrid, it was mad because, um, because I used to work as a carpenter, you know, and in Ireland, everyone would either burn what they have or fix it up or bring it to the tip or the dump. But in Spain here, people throw out the best furniture and they be they have what they like recycling points or they, they call them like clean points. And I'd be driving by and I'd see this table or this chair and I'd be like, Jesus, that's in great nick. And I'd bring it home and I'd say to my wife, look at this. And I'd, I'd, I'd have a little workshop and I'd fix it up in the workshop. And she says to me, it's mad the stuff people throw out. Like it's such a disposable society, you know. Yeah, well, it, it's a treasure trove for somebody like you that's that's able to bring something and bring it back to exactly the way it should be. It's uh, It must be very satisfying. It is, yeah. And then sometimes you find you have bits of stuff. I, I go in my workshop and I find I have bits of stuff and I'm like, I have to get rid of that. I never did anything with it. Or So you, you build up, you have a clutter, like a, a corner where you're like, you know, these shows you watch and the, you can't, the guy can't get in his house with newspapers and everything. It's not that bad. But sometimes I have to do a big clean out. <laughs> I think we all need somebody in our life that is able to come in with us and say, well, you, you have to get rid of that, that, that and that and that. And you, you have to say, well, I'll keep one of them. Yeah. They say, well, no, the other four have to go. <laughs> when did you use it? <laughs> I heard that the other day I was um, I was listening to, you know, that guy, Nile Rogers from Chic, you know, that guitarist from Chic. And he was talking about his guitar collection. Now, he, he has a huge a car collection and a huge guitar collection. But he said, I would have these amazing guitars from Fender and you know, Gibson, all these amazing guitars. And he said, I would get them because I think there'd be a small difference between that guitar and the, the year before it. He said, but then I realized there wasn't so much. It was more the wood and all these things, you know. So he said, but now I realize that I have to pass it on to somebody else, either sell the guitars or give them to somebody. Because, you know, as you get older, you have all this stuff sitting there, whether it be multi-million dollar guitars or cars or bits of junk in the workshop or the shed, you know, you have to move them on. Yeah, it's all the same thing, isn't it? I, I'm, I don't have that many guitars, but I do have too many. And I've probably... <laughs> I've given away a couple of guitars over the years and I've sold one, but it's very hard to get rid of them because they are all different yeah. and they have they have their own uh, personality and they have their own sound and quality. So it is difficult to get rid and of And you them. do you do form a kind of an attachment to them, don't you? You're you're like I don't know what it is, but I remember the first guitar I kind of not the first guitar I had, but the first one I kind of started learning on was an ovation. And it was, I remember I used it for busking and everything for years. And um, I remember then when I was teaching guitar in tune, I was, I got another guitar, a tack of mine. 
and I had this ovation and I thought, will I keep it now because it's kind of nostalgic? But then there was a young fella coming to the lessons and he loved the guitar. He was like, oh, I love that guitar. And he kept going on about it. So I said to him, look, you know what? I'm gonna, do you want to buy this guitar for me? So he bought it. And even the other day I was thinking, geez, I wonder, does he still have that guitar? And would I ever come across it again? You know, it's nostalgic, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it it was a part of your life and it was very functional and you had your your little um, experiences with it and you might buy it back. Yeah, you never know. I mean, it's funny when you hear people tracking down guitars or come across them by accident and years later and they go, oh, Jesus, I didn't know that was out there. Or some fella says, I still have it, you know. I was talking to a girl, actually, I, I, I used to teach guitar to, and I've started teaching her again. And um, she said to me, oh, I have the same guitar up on the shelf, you know, strings never changed. And it's up there about eight or nine years. And I said, sure, take it down and have a look at it, you know. They're, they're like, guitars are like that. They're like old pianos. They just, they maintain that, don't they? They're a living piece of wood. Yeah, they get better. They get better, yeah, like a good wine. Yeah. So tell us, Leo, um, like, do you find it now in the lockdown? Do you find you ever have boredom being in the house all the time? Or, you know, does, does it ever get too much for you or you're content with it? No, boredom has never been a problem for me. I, I could never call myself bored. And sometimes mm. I'd, I'd wish boredom on myself because I think boredom can be a good inspiration for being creative when you have nothing else to do. But I can always find something to do and I, I'm never... I'm really never bored and I seem to be doing an awful lot of nothing these days, but the time is flying at the same time. Uh, would you say that you have a very busy mind? You're very active all the time? No, I'm kind of lazy now. I've got into this laziness. Uh, I was I had an awful busy mind for, for years, uh, just wanting to do things and, and wanting to do the next thing and all that. And maybe I've kind of used up my quota of that for the time being, I feel. And I think it's maybe time for me now just to sit back and and uh, observe things and just take it easy. Yeah, you're, you're not in your twilight years, but you're starting to relax a bit more. Well, I did enough of the other thing um, and, uh, you know, drew a lot of attention to myself, I suppose, in a lot of ways. But I was I was up for that. And that's that's what I wanted. And at the moment now, I'm really more interested in playing with Porrick Stevens. That's what I'm doing at these days musically and Porrick has Porrick has so many brilliant songs that people haven't heard and I feel that people have heard an awful lot of my songs that maybe aren't that brilliant so uh, I, I just I just like to help them hear Porrick's songs now and I think it's to, to give them time for that and hopefully be able to do more of that that's that's my aim that's where I started out from really does that mean for you that now you feel kind of like you said there you were in the driver's seat for a while and now you feel like being in the back seat pushing on pushing the fella in front on a bit you feel more like that now well i always felt that was my place in the world yeah uh, you know if i was playing a sport i wouldn't be the goal scorer but i'd give you the pass kind of thing that'd be right my, right right that'd be where i'd feel comfortable i feel comfortable as a supporter of people and i was very lucky when i was a young teenager to get so in love with music and music was the thing I loved the most. I'm not very talented as a musician, but luckily I was around people that were seriously talented. Others would disagree with you, you know, because it's not the thing about music. It doesn't matter if you're a piano player or a guitar player. 
You know, there's lots of people that are really technically gifted, but creatively they're not. So the thing about it is the most gifted players sometimes can be lacking in being able to write a song, a simple song. And then the fella, it's like Noel Gallagher said the time he was on the Late Late Show, he said, I don't know the names of any of these chords I'm playing, but I know how to get them onto the guitar. And and that's what it's all about. Sometimes it comes out and you don't need to be technical, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But the people I was around growing up with were were like that. They weren't very technical, but they had great passion mm. and great skill and great ways of writing songs. And I was lucky to grow up in this environment. And I started off with Mousy and Cuser McHugh with our own little band. And then Blaze X happened in Tume and they were phenomenal. And mm. then there was somebody like Seamus Rutledge, who I've done albums with and done loads of gigs with. And there's loads of other people, Noli McDonald. Seamus is a great character, isn't he? I, I, you know, it was a great time. He's brilliant. And But like Tune's like that, isn't it? I mean, there's some great characters around. And 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 the thing is, like you said there with Porrick, Porrick Stevens and Seamus and all that. I mean, you know, th- those guys are like living legends in Tune. And, and they've done so much and are still doing so much, no? Yeah, well, I, I started off uh, wanting to be a part of the music and maybe be maybe be in the band. But if if I wasn't going to be in the band, I'd have been happy doing the lights or selling the records or what. I just wanted to be a part of the thing. For a, When a gig happened to me, it was such an exciting thing. It was like the circus came to town and I kind of just wanted to run away with that circus of just being involved in music and gigs. Yeah, and I've spent my life since a, a, a young teenager just uh, helping my friends get their songs out in the world. And that's what I'm doing at the moment now with Porrick. And so I'm pretty much doing the same thing as I've always been doing. So I'm, I'm delighted with that. Tell us about your early life in Tume. Like what, what are your earliest memories of the town when you're, you know, when, when you start to remember, what do you remember most about the town when you were a young whippersnapper? Well, I remember having a lot of fun and, and being surrounded by a lot of funny people and a good company and interesting characters. Uh, we played loads of sport. We played football and soccer and handball and all that kind of crack. We had good times in school. Uh, the teachers were decent. We had the snooker hall to go to and we had we were never bored. And Which snooker hall did you go to? What Which one was that? Uh... Well, the one at the time was in the parochial centre and that's the one everybody went to at the time. There was three tables up there and we, I was going there since um, since I was about 10, I'd say. Right. And it was a great, great place to go, and we, we great laughs, and and learned a bit of snooker, and just it was a sociable place where people could meet up, and and then we had the youth clubs, which were great, and they were they were your first discos and your first the first shift as as uh, as Big Sam always says the erection section when the junior youth club was out on a Tuesday night the word would get around that Father Concanon was out of town, so then we could have a slow dance set. Oh wow! But if he wasn't in, if he was around and he wasn't out of town, there was no slow dances allowed at the time. Wow, that's crazy. The house you're living in there, you're still in the same house. Your that that house is very old. Your dad was there and everything, wasn't he? Yeah, this house. Uh, my dad was born here in 1919. So, and he was the youngest of the family. So, I'm not sure. I think the my grandfather must have bought this house about you know just over a hundred years ago. He came back from America and he originally bought a house down <laughs> down opposite the Protestant Cathedral where the dentist is. 
whatever. I'm not sure which one. My father didn't know which one either. And then uh, he bought this one. So, yeah, I'm very lucky to inherit this house. Fair play to my grandfather. It's a very comfortable place and I love the location. And, yeah, it, it, my father lived all his life here except for a couple of years in Dublin. So And it's right in the middle of town, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, it's great. I'm, I'm in a real townie. I like being able to walk to things. I can park the car for a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. You, the thing is, there you're you're right in the hub. You know the center of it. And now, of course, you have what Keedy's, the dry cleaners, and the railway kitchen was there. But obviously, when you were growing up, you you had the the railway station was closed down that time, was it? Or was it? It was it was open. Yeah, the railway was the railway was a wonderful place. There was so much action going on there, and so much business, and so much stuff moving, and people moving. It was a great source of liveliness, and and just it was a wonderful place to grow up near. And a lot of my father and mother's friends worked in the railway, and they used to come over for a cup of tea on their breaks. And my wow. mother's father had been a, an engine driver, and that's why he came to Chewman. So there was a great connection with the railway. And Your mother was a young woman as well, was she? Yes, and her, her grandfather was from um, Labashida in, in Clare, and he came up to work on the railway, and he was a, a driver oh. originally. So so there was a great old connection. And there's bits of railway in the shed, and there's, you know, there's, there's a railway line used as a strengthener and stuff like that. There was, there was always kind of... Girders and everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And at that time, do you remember the railway? It, it was going between, what, Castlereagh and Ballygloon and up uh, Where was it heading? Well, we'd, we'd be able to go to basically Athenry and go from there. Right. And um, we went to Ennis, I remember, a couple of times with my mother for a day out as kids. OK. Went on the train. And we, went, we also went to the 1971 All-Ireland Final to Dublin on the train. I remember that as well. Wow. That's yeah. mad, isn't it? Yeah. So that was a You left yeah. in Chum? Yeah. Wow. So did you get on in Chum and go directly or you had to change in Athen Rye? I think we changed in Athen Rye, as far as okay, I remember. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because that train would have been more local, the, the Chum one. It would have been Chum, Ballygloon and Athen Rye. Um, but, but it used to usually change in Athen Rye, didn't it? Yeah, that must have been what happened. I don't, I couldn't guarantee you that now yeah. for sure, but we definitely went through it. That That's some memories, though, because even I know they're with the Ballygloonan one. You know, they've fixed it up a lot, and but it's 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 crazy, isn't it? You know, those stations. There were such a an abundance of life and people working there and people traveling and going through, and you know, they were just left to be nothing, just derelicts, and it's such a shame, wasn't it? Oh, it's a terrible shame, and and it used to be the railway kitchen there in recent years until yeah. a couple of years ago, and and uh, CIE just closed it down. They wouldn't rent it to anybody else. They wouldn't let them take back the lease, and now they've just boarded it up, and it it's just going to rack and ruin. And it, I mean, it, it, while it was the railway kitchen, it was being preserved and it was being heated, and it was it was better for everyone. People use it. I remember many time going into the railway kitchen for breakfast, and it was great. And what's her name, Maureen Monaghan? There, you know, it was brilliant. Oh, you know? brilliant! They were brilliant people, and and it was a brilliant. wonderful restaurant, and it was a place where people met as well. And and it was it was a it was a social hub, uh, and and in that way, it's been a loss as well. It's terrible. Yeah. The shame about that is, 
it's like I was looking there the other day, the, you know, the Carb Great Southern in Galway City, you know, that's going to be knocked soon. And you kind of look at these old landmark buildings, hotels, uh, train stations, and fair enough, if the building is derelict and it's about to fall, you have to knock it. But sometimes you think they could have got in there sooner and preserved those buildings for other uses, no? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, CIE, whatever you call it, Irish Rail, is a kind of bit of a dinosaur. It moves very slowly. It's an old kind of a semi-state mentality and they don't have a lot of imagination about what can happen in the buildings. And the unfortunate thing about it is, and there's a, the debate is going on in Tume, of course, whether it'll be uh, a railway again or whether it could be a greenway. But whichever way that goes, the building will be needed. It, and it could be a great museum. I mean, you know, or something that, like I know in the past, people have had some exhibitions there. And, and you know, what's great thing, when you come back to the music scene, lots of people have made videos there and short films and everything. So even if it was just for that, just for the arts, if it was some kind of art centre, it'd be great, no? Absolutely. It's a wonderful building. It's got a great atmosphere. It's a place people like to be. Like you said, it gets used a lot because it's so interesting and distinctive looking. So I don't know. It just it would take a bit of imagination on Irish Rail's part to allow the building to get used yeah. in, a, in a, some kind of a way. That well, you know, it, it's always, isn't it, that if it's not cost effective or they're not making money on it, then they just close them down. It's not so much about letting th something be as it is just for the people they don't want to do that because they're always looking at the numbers you know yeah and it's just too easy when you were in when you went to school and you went to the brothers or jarlins i went to the brothers when, when the I brothers yeah the brothers. yeah and who did you have teaching you there i had sean burke uh kevin dwyer kevin kilgariff sean tierney joe lynch joe burke leo gardner brother nolan yeah, I remember those because you're a few years older than me. But I, when I went there, I had all those as well. Joe, Joe Lynch and Sean Tierney and, and John, John, what's his name? John Tobin, he, was he there Tobin, that time? Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and who was the principal? Was Brother Carberry there that time? No. He, uh, the principal in my time was Brother Killeen. Brother Killeen, okay. I never had him. I had Brother Carberry. Yes, I remember him. And uh, the the principal before that, when I went into the secondary school, was Brother O'Callaghan, and he actually dropped dead in class. Oh, God. While you were in yeah. the class, he dropped dead? Not in our class, uh, but okay. we were in school at the time, yeah. He dropped dead, and he must have died young, I suppose. He was a mathematical wow. genius, a decent man. He was very wow, well respected wow. as, a, as a teacher. As a teacher. I, I remember there was, uh, what was his name? Do you remember there was a, a brother, they used to call him Bongo. Did you have him? No, you're just, he was, was just after me now. I think so, but he was vicious. I remember he used to put his kneeling on the pencils because I was an awful messer in school, you know, and uh, I, I loved the bit of crack and everything. And I only was in the Christian Brothers for three years because I went to do a carpentry apprenticeship. But I remember at the time I used to have all the side of my head shaved and... I'd brother Carberry would say to me every day, what, what, what do you plan on being when you're growing up? And, and in front of the lads, I'd say, well, I was hoping to be a man first and I'll take it from there. And he never liked that. And he always gave me stick, you know, but brother, I think it was brother Donnelly, yeah, Bongo, they called him. He would put you on kneeling on two pencils, put, like put the pencils flat on the ground and you'd kneel. And the worst, that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was you would have to stare at him. You'd be in front of his desk 
and he would demand that you stare at him. Not You couldn't turn your gaze away. That was like for the whole, whatever, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. And it was like psychological torture. That was, he, he, he was thinking a bit too much about that, wasn't he? Like, that was... Uh, really, that took... really. That oh, was kind of so. Nazi torture stuff, whatever he was reading or watching. You know, those, like, you know what I mean? If you, if you even when you're that age, kneeling on two thin pencils, your knees would be killing you. But the fact you had to stare at him and, he, and if he looked away, he'd bang the table. And sure, you were humiliated in front of everyone. Oh, God. That, he, yeah, he, he was definitely thinking too much about that. I wonder about that. I wonder about that. Yeah, he was vicious. I mean, I suppose lots of people, when they look back, there was always one or two teachers, you know, that were a bit more aggressive than the others, you know. But saying that, a lot of those teachers, you said they were great teachers, you know. Absolutely. Sean Barton, uh, Mr. Tierney and everything. They were great. I mean, they were hard and strict, but they were nice people, you know. Absolutely, yeah. And, and we had a lot of laughs. There was plenty of plenty of ability for laughing in the school. It was it was a good education. Were you always in the were you in the new school then or the older one still? I was in the changeover. Oh, you were in the changeover, okay. Yeah. We did the first three years in the old school and the second two years in the new school. Okay. So that was a big change going into this new school and you know, new building and everything. Yeah, because the old school was great crack. It was ramshackle and it was you couldn't have damaged it any more than it was. So there was a great sense of comfort in it by the fact yeah. that it was, it, it, you know, it was it wasn't fancy. And then we had to go to the new school. We had to combine that had to be minded then, which was a totally different thing. Yeah, no drawing on stuff or writing on the walls to be watching every move. You did your leave insert there at all. And then. After that, did you you went to college directly or did you go away or anything or what did you do? No, I just went to college. I didn't know what to do. I I, I really had no aim at all. And my mother used to always say, sure, why don't you just go to college? And she used to say, education is no load. That was her phrase. And then I... UIG or... Yeah. So I picked I picked NUIG and, and well, it was obvious enough and I... I did French and sociology and economics and philosophy for first year, as you you did four subjects in first year. Did you enjoy it? I thought it was okay. Um, I, I was neither mad about it nor I was, you know, I was just doing it because I didn't know what else to do. Right. And I, I liked the sociability of it, and I liked it was great to, you know, to meet people from all around the country and hear all the different accents. I loved all that about college, and I love Galway, of course. Was your aim to become a teacher of French and sociology or you were just kind of, was it a stopgap? You weren't sure what you were going to do? It was aimless. And I used to say to my mother, <laughs> I don't think I'd really want to do next year. I don't think I, and she'd say, well, it, you know, it's only a few months. It's only from September until May, like, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So it came to that point where I had got the degree and would I do the dip? And she convinced me, keep doing the dip. And I did that and I did the hours both in the brothers and in Jarrett's. And yeah. I knew I knew from then on I wouldn't be a teacher. It was way too difficult. Did you do like much teaching practice or how long were you teaching? Well, I did as much as anyone would do, whatever you had to do. Like um, I did a bit more, actually, because I got a few extra hours in Jarrett's. Yeah. And um, I just I wasn't really good at it. I wasn't able to keep a class. The problem I had was I, I thought the lads were very funny. I thought all the jokes were funny. I used to laugh <laughs> at them. And I... <laughs> I probably felt more like one of them than than a teacher. I was more close to their generation and their style than I would have yeah. been to teacher style. So, 
But but yeah. I got on okay, and and they were really good to me when the inspector came. Then they pretended they were disciplined, and they, they because because we got on so well, they did me the favor of making me look good. Yeah, yeah, and that was nice too. I mean, but you you realize after a while yourself, then oh God, I don't know if I want to do this, and you know, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because I know myself, I'm. Um, I teach English here and as well as music and but I worked for I worked for two or three years here teaching English in a school and teaching music in a school. But like that, you know, depend I was actually in one or two private schools and sure they're worse with money because they have these big ideas and they're they're obnoxious and arrogant to kids sometimes. And um I mean Jesus, if you're in a school and they've no discipline policy or nothing then I mean, it's great to be able to, I, I love being able to relate to teenagers and, you know, you have great connections with them. But if you get the, the little assholes, as we call them, who just want to cause trouble, but then there's no repercussions, it's hard to teach those guys, you know. So after I did it for two or three years, I thought, I don't want to really want to work in schools anymore. It's not my thing. Uh, teaching is a really difficult thing. And it's very difficult to teach people who are not interested in what you're teaching them. And mm. unfortunately... In school, a lot of kids aren't interested in, in what the subjects are. And when you see people who go back into education after, you know, in a, after they've finished and they go back in a mature fashion, they just love it and they eat it up. And it must be such a pleasure to teach them because everybody's learning together then. Yeah. And, and you know, it's really it's mad because you'll always find it doesn't matter if it's, you know, English, music, whatever, sociology, if you are teaching and you get somebody that comes in like that and has an aptitude and a desire and wants to learn, I mean, it's a joy, isn't it? I mean, you, you can kind of say, wow, this guy really is keen and he wants to learn. And, you know, it's nice teaching those people. But unfortunately, the way the school system is set up, they don't really try to make it enjoyable. It's kind of a bit of a chore for a lot of people. And, the kids can't see the benefit of it and they can't see where it's going because maybe sometimes they're too young to make those decisions. Absolutely. And it's very hard for any of us to be interested in something that just doesn't interest us or that we're not going to be any good at. And, and you know, but but the opposite of that is we can be very good at stuff we are interested in. And, and yeah, maybe the, maybe if it was possible at all, if more effort could be made to to match the two up more often. So the kids yeah, could do it, what they love. Like you obviously love carpentry and you were able yeah. to go and learn it. And you you were probably a great student in that situation. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was different because I remember when I, I remember when I left school and, you know, and in school, I just loved having the crack and all. I wasn't thinking about like ac academic stuff or, you know, I, was, I wasn't, I hadn't a goal like, oh, I'm going to get my leaving cert and go on and do this in college. I just, you know, I liked people and I liked having the crack and I liked having the crack with the teachers. I knew what I wanted to do and I went and did it and I enjoyed it and I did it for a good few years. And, and now I don't, I only do it kind of occasionally. But the thing is, I'll always look back and say, well, I did that. And then I went on to do academic stuff later. So I feel I've more strings to my bow. Do you know that kind of way? So it'll always stand to you. Yeah. And I think, I think academics are, are, overrated sometimes or they shouldn't be any more highly rated than carpentry or any other skill that you can do mm. I think generally people have more or less the same talent it's just to have it in different areas and if they can get into that area well then they will thrive I did carpentry uh, woodwork in first year for a couple of weeks but there was too many too many in our class and, and uh, the, everybody couldn't go to woodwork so it was on a, a rotation system but but our yeah, but I remember the first two classes. Uh, 
he we were taught how to do a dovetail joint and my dovetail joint w- wouldn't fit like so I, I, I took the rotation as the uh, I went I rotated out every week after that because there was no I knew I knew there was nothing for me but I said it to somebody since and a carpenter and he said what he said they tried to teach it a dovetail joint the first thing he said that's that's some place to start he said <laughs> I think what it was, you know, those teachers sometimes, I remember we had Woody, you know, what was his name, Frank Donahue from Athenari, I think he was, or Lockray. But he, and he, he was very placid kind of and stuff. But yeah, they, were, they had big ambitions for lads who had no ambitions. You know, they'd be saying, oh, now you to learn these few joints and fellas be like, well, what am I going to use with that? You know, and I remember even doing woodwork. When, when I was doing woodwork in school, even though I went on to be a carpenter, I didn't really have that much interest. I was doing it, but... I didn't see a point even when you're in first year, second year, like, what do I need this for? You know, so it's it's funny what you said there, because it would be great. And I'm sure there are schools around the world like this, where when you're 12 or 13, they sit you down and they say, what do you love doing? What, what's your interests? And you say, oh, I love playing guitar, love playing football and video games. I love, and then they kind of say, well, let's look at all those things and see what you could do in the future. Could we use any of those skills? They just don't do that. Like, your careers advice teacher doesn't say, oh, you could be a great YouTuber or you could be a great musician. They don't really say that. They look at the professional accountant, teacher, politician roles, don't they? Yeah, and, and somebody said to me lately as well that if you have a kid in school, they say, oh, she's um, she's good at French and, and uh, Spanish, but she's very bad at maths, so we're going to get her maths grinds. It's like, why don't you get her French grinds, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take the stuff she's good at and, ma- yeah. and and improve it. Yeah, and stop trying to get her doing stuff that she hates and she's never going to be any good at it. She's never going to like and never. You know, it's it's unfortunately we seem to uh, emphasize the other way around. Yeah, we, we find the weak things and try to improve them rather than say, well, listen, maybe don't waste your time focus on the things she likes or he likes, whatever, and improve that. And that could be their forte. That could be the thing they're good at when they're older. And she could be an amazing translator rather than a, a bad mathematician. And they might never have to do anything else in their life, which is yeah. ideal. This is what you're looking for, is that you just do something you like doing, isn't it? Before you kind of like started teaching and stuff, did you have other jobs around the town or summer jobs or did you do anything different? No, I was very bad, very bad. I did. I remember I, did. I was the porter in the Imperial Hotel for a couple of weekends. Michael Cohen had the job and he was going on his holidays. So I did that, I remember. Right. I remember um, Gina Dale Hayes and the champions staying there and making sandwiches. And were they just staying there or the plane there, was, there as well? They were staying there. Okay. And there was a there was a woman, uh, Mrs. Kelly, used to work in the kitchen. She used to make this amazing, huge apple tart. She was the size of a table. And oh, wow, wow! But I did, I did, uh, I I picked uh, fruit and berries in, across in the hospital in in the garden a bit. And no, I didn't really have proper jobs. So, like when you were in university, and then you did your, you know, your teaching practice and stuff. What what was the the day you thought okay I'm not doing this anymore when when did you just decide to go the other way Well I'd say the first day I tried teaching I decided this is not for me <laughs> <laughs> I saw it out but uh, so um but I had when I was in college I got friendly with the people on the entertainments uh, yeah. 
that was Porrick Bourne and Tony Killing. And when the gigs were on in Galway, I used to bring the posters and tickets down to Tube. And when I'd bring the tickets and posters or, you know, the money back in to the gig, they used to let me into the gig for free. So I had be, I had been going to gigs since I was uh, since I was 13. Uh, Jimmy McHugh, Mousy and Cusers, Squiggly's father brought us to the Boomtown Rats on wow. New Year's Eve 1977 in Leisureland. And that was a momentous occasion. I never looked back after that. That was just such an exciting thing. So I had been going to gigs in Leisureland and Seapoint and Galway over the years. So when I started going to college, these were the people in the ENS department who were running those gigs. And I got to know them and got to know the, the whole kind of music family in Galway then through them. At that stage, obviously, you had been playing guitar for a while and you, you were you playing in some tune bands at that stage when you were in college as well? Uh, bits and pieces, not so much. Um, I was, we, we were originally at a band called The Mix, Mousy and Kuzer and myself and Sean Cliff mm. and, and then they went on, um, they had All Cats Are Grey and they played support to New Order in the All of Maxima in 1983. Really? And I was their, I was their so-called manager or whatever. I, I kind of organised it a bit, but you know, it would have happened anyway. How did they get that gig? Well, they were good, and and they were just, yeah. um, they were hanging around, and um, they they got offered, and and there was uh, the other band on were were the um, what do you call them? Oh God, I can't say the name now. But it was Steve Wall, Eamon Dowd, Cormac Dunn and Sammy Rowan who died a couple of years ago God rest him. what was the name I, I'll think of it in a, in a while so that was before the stunning was it yeah there was three bands yeah. on that night and uh, it was a brilliant night amazing so that was 1983 wow. and then in about 1986 when I was finishing in college uh, a few of the lads Mousy and a few of the other lads had been over in London and they came back and they wanted to start a reggae band so I yeah. became a guitar player in Too Much for the White Man. Yes, great band. Yeah. At that stage, like what age did you start playing guitar? Uh, about 14, I think. And what made you pick it up? Was there some somebody or somebody from Tume or somebody that inspired you from the television or what was it? Well, it was Mousy and Cuser again saying, well, let's, why don't we get a guitar and see if we can learn how to play it and do a bit of, write a few songs. I wanted to be a bass player, but Mousy, Mousy bought a bass and Unfortunately, he was gifted with it, so he could he from day one when he took it up, he was able to play it. So he was automatically the bass player. So I had to decide. I had to be something else. <laughs> it, it's mad because sometimes it's like I remember being in a band once, and there was three guitar players, and nobody wanted to be the bassist. And but eventually, someone has to take the role, you know. So that was mad because you wanted to be the bassist. <laughs> I did, yeah. I, my uh, the lad I loved was JJ Burnell in the Stranglers. I wanted to be him. Oh yes, yes, yes. You wanted to be him, yeah. But Mousy Mousy got the bass going. He was brilliant. So you know it was good. We got a lot of good yeah. things done. We had a lot of fun. How would you learn stuff? Would you be like with the tape, pausing, stopping, or the record player? How did you learn the songs, cover songs and stuff? Well, we just learned the chords. Somebody you'd find you could buy books with chords in them that time. And yeah. Like you're trying to listen stuff. stuff. Like I was a slow learner. Like I said, Mousy had it like that. He was off. Yeah. Like, but he, what he'd learn in a day would take me two months, kind of thing. But I stuck at it and got around to learning a little bit anyway. Yeah, yeah. And did you like? Where did you? Can you remember getting your first guitar? Where did you get it? 
Yeah, it was in uh, in the shopping centre in Galway on the Hedford Road in Chivago uh, Records, it was called. Oh, I remember it well. And they would have the guitar taken up. That's right, yeah. Was it a Yamaha or something? What was it? It was called Kyoto, which is a, it's a city in Japan, I think, isn't it? And yeah. I brought her down on a winter's day to Chum on the bus on a wet, dreary, stuffy, damp winter's day in a, in a big... In a big uh, cardboard box, it looked like a small coffin. Oh yeah, that that's the thing about the guitars; they look like small coffins, don't they? <laughs> yeah, and I got it down as far as the house and started trying to play it. And friend of mine, and then uh, neighbour of my grandparents, Mary Morgan, she taught me a couple of chords to start off with. And I mean, as I said, you you could teach me two chords that time, and it should be enough for three months, you know, for me to be practicing that. When did you kind of start to feel like, geez, I might try and write a song or did it just come out of you one day or how did how did you start songwriting? Well, we started trying to write songs pretty much immediately. Mm. Uh, that's what we wanted to do. That's why we got the guitars. <laughs> Was it more of a group thing you'd write songs or one fella would come and say, I have a great song or what, how does that work? A bit of, a bit of both, really. Cuser used to write songs himself and Mousy and myself and Cuser used to write songs kind of together as well then. Right, right. Yeah, that's what we wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, then, so you were kind of involved, so you were playing and you were, you know, playing with those different kind of lads around you. And you were also on the entertainment society and, and doing the gigs and everything. Did it light a spark on you and you thought, I want to do this. I want to kind of work at this. And did that make you put a change in you? It was kind of one day at a time and we just kept doing it. And... um we were doing fairly well with with uh, too much for the white man, of course, and then uh, I started meeting up with uh, Davy Carton and Mary O'Connor, and, and I knew Davy from the Blaze X time. Blaze X were superb, uh, fully formed, proper band from the start. Like they were amazing. They only lasted a year and a half, but I knew that there was a lot of songs that had been really good, and I felt they were they were worth people heard and if that was possible so I started getting together with Davy and reviving some of the Blaze X songs and Mary O'Connor was his next door neighbour and we started doing a few gigs with those songs that had been left over from Blaze X time Did you rework them then because obviously Blaze X were a bit more punky did you change them a little yeah. bit or keep them we the same? We went through kind of a at that point in time in the late 80s we got very interested in country music Right like what? What? What kind of well, country music? It was music? Jason and the Scorchers and Dwight Joachim and Steve Earle and all that, all that kind of stuff was happening, and uh, we got interested in that. Copperhead Road Even and everything. Before that, yeah, uh, Steve Earle's for uh, I don't know it was his first album, but Guitar Town was a classic. So, oh yes, yes, great, great, started, great album. Um, yeah, we started getting interested in in doing that kind of thing, and that's that's what we kind of were at for a while then. You know, messing around. So that's that's interesting, isn't it? Because, as you said, you were kind of getting into that, but then taking songs that were kind of written more in the vein of a punk band or a tune punk band, and you were adapting them to that country style. So it was a interesting kind of a mix. Oh, it wasn't was it? very interesting mix, and we just we just kept doing it. Then uh, we got Tarps playing along with us, and Fergal McGrath played the drums for a while. Porrick Stevens was back 
Where did you used to practice in someone's house? Yeah, or we used a... to practice in our shed here, or we used to, we practiced down in Fergal's house as well. I remember, and um, we did a few gigs and got on kind of okay. We did the Man of Iron and the Hair In, and McAvoy's was going at the time, which was the real center of of the scene at the time. There was music there every night of the weekend, every weekend. Was it hard to get gigs? Well, it wasn't hard to get them, but it was, you know, hard to get people to go to them. <laughs> That's the way, isn't it? It's like, is it, it would it be easy to get a gig here and a fellow said to you, well, there's no problem getting a gig, but I can't pay you. <laughs> or you'll have to bring yeah, well, your own crowd, you know? Yeah, we weren't really expecting money anyway because we you, we couldn't draw a crowd. I mean, that time the, you might get 50 pounds or something or 30 pounds or something. It was grand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just wanted to replay. We were going to play anyway. Like, was it a thing where you'd be kind of hiring gear or you'd be borrowing speakers off lads and that kind of stuff? We'd have to get the loan of a PA somewhere, but we had guitar amps and stuff and beds. We we weren't well kitted out and we weren't really on the ball. But um, Mary O'Connor then went off to England and Davy and myself and Terps um, kept at it. And Fergal McGrath went back to, he was working in the flower business in Dublin at the time, the uh, selling plants. So he didn't really have a lot of time for it. And Porrick Stevens came back home from London at the time. So then we had Porrick, Davy, Turps and myself. And I was playing the bass. I eventually got to play the bass. <laughs> oh, you got it. You were back to JJ Burrell. Yeah. You were... Your dream was coming true. Yeah, but myself and Davey then started writing songs and we were coming up with riffs and I didn't really want to be asking. I was playing the guitar riffs. I was kind of, Davey was the brain and I was the fingers. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah. I didn't really want to be asking anybody else to play them. So we thought maybe, maybe we'll get a bass player. But what happened then was Mike Scott saw us playing in the keys. And he asked us to go on tour with the Waterboys around Ireland, Support Act. And the Waterboys were huge at the time. And this was a momentous occasion for us because there was a great buzz. How long were you playing? How long were you together as such when that happened? Well, we'd gone through the different lineups already for about, uh, I suppose, about two years. On and on. Like it wasn't full time or anything, it was just part time, an odd thing every now and again. Like you can see a five piece band, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, a, a, like a big band or a small band. But the thing is, a, a lot of bands sometimes you see the five lads, but maybe there's only one or two are at the heart of the band. Or And, and the problem is that bands can, you like, you know, you can go through lots of lineups because things change at any given moment. And like you said there, maybe the way the music's going, the lineup can change. So it's really interesting that I always think of the dynamics of a band, how you can see five guys on stage, but maybe two of them are hired guns or they're in the band for a while or they don't have the same kind of ambition or they don't have the same kind of outlook as the other or two of them might you know so things can change a lot no being in a band is like it's like being on a sports team or whatever it's a team game and it's very complex and by its by its nature i think it's always going to be imperfect but as long as you have enough energy and enough good ideas and enough enthusiasm from people going in in a certain direction or close to the same direction anyway you can really make progress and and uh, as long as you have that you'll you'll 
you'll be making progress. And what the progress I always wanted was to play gigs. The the main unit of what I loved was the songs. To me, the songs made the friends for you. And if you had good if, if you yes, had good yes, songs yeah. and played them reasonably well, the main thing I wanted to do was play gigs and play as many gigs as possible to as many people as possible who would enjoy the songs. So you know, and it's funny because when you say about the song as well, I remember oh geez about 10 years ago 12 years ago when, when I started kind of doing Collective Whisper and the music and at that time I just wanted to play guitar I was thinking you know I was writing the songs and I thought okay I, I don't want to I don't want to be the lead singer I want to play more lead guitar and stuff so I asked this fella to come in and um, audition you know for a singer and it was crazy because he came in and all during the whole audition I gave him three songs to you know to learn and uh so he started singing the first one and he had his eyes closed, right? The whole time while he was singing. So he started singing and I was thinking, what song is this? So what he had done was he had rewritten the songs, all the songs I'd given him. He changed all the words and the drummer was looking at me like, what the hell is going on? But it was all in the melody of the songs we'd given, but he put all, changed all the words. So I let him, just out of curiosity, we let him sing the first song and with all new words. And then he went doing the second song with all new words. And I stopped him. I said, uh, what, what, what are you doing? Oh, I won't say his name now, but I said, what, what are you doing? And he said, uh, he said, what do you mean? I said, they're the songs, which they're completely different words. And he goes, well, I'll be the singer. So I thought I had to put my own spin on it. And I thought, well, no, do you not understand the whole notion of like writing a song? I said, imagine if I wrote that song and it meant something to me or it was an important part of something. I said, then now it's just you're changing it. It could be anything. So I said, I said, I'm afraid, I'm afraid we have a different outlook on that here. You know, <laughs> it's an interesting thing. Like it was, it was a great effort, and it was very diligent and quite creative to yeah. go and do that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But but it's like someone taking your your painting and say, well, I I liked it, but I put new colors on it. You know. Yeah, I mean, well, changing all the words is fairly drastic. Fairly drastic, yeah. You might you might get a, someone that would say, oh, I changed a, a line here. And you say, oh, yeah, that works better or whatever. But when, when you don't recognize the song at all, you're kind of like, maybe this is a bit too much, you know? That was like you said, that song was about my granny who just died and now you've changed everything. It's a unique <laughs> experience you had there now. That's a good one. Yeah, I always remember that. It was funny. So listen, go back to go back to so Mike Scott. And actually, I have to tell you, Mike Scott's one of my heroes. When I got turned on to music first, because I used to be when I was young, I didn't listen to music really till I was about 14 or 15. And um, I was kind of because I, I was doing martial arts and karate and tune there. I used to train with Celia Kelly. I don't know if you ever remember her. I started, you know, listening to music and um I was listening to, I got into the Waterboys, one of the first, and I always remember, it's like 30 years ago, the Room to Roam album. That's the one they were doing in Spiddle. Remember that? That's the time. And that album, I played it to death. I loved it. I loved the, the variety of the songs. Like, some were rocky, some were traditional, some were folk. And it was crazy because I was listening to that, and I was also listening to Guns N' Roses. So... My mother would be like, I don't know what's coming out of your room. One minute there's Irish traditional music and the next minute there's like heavy guitars. But I loved it. And I've always loved the Waterboys since. And I think Mike Scott is a phenomenal songwriter. He's amazing. Brilliant guy. Oh, absolutely. And he's he's all the time doing it. He's a, he's a fantastic artist. And just you have to you have to hand it to him. Uh, the Waterboys were huge when we were uh, at that crack in the late 80s. 
I had seen them in Seapoint, and to this day, it's one of the greatest gigs I've ever been at. Um, people wouldn't leave. They demanded an encore, and then they demanded another encore, and then people would not leave the building until they played another song or two. And it was it was just amazing. They, they really were at the top of their game. They had mixed up the rock sound with the new country sound, the mandolin and the fiddle and the saxophone. They were doing kind of country music as well. They were doing Hank Williams songs and writing country songs and doing Bob Dylan songs. And it was just a magical time. So for us to have become associated with them and be able to travel around with them and play to their audience was an amazing privilege entirely. It was very, very exciting. Did, did you find that because they had such a good mix of music and as you said, they'd be playing everything from country to folk to everything. Did you find that it changed your music as well? Was it, did it influence your music? Well, I think, I think definitely influenced what I do. I was thinking about music. Yeah. Because they, they, they had that sound, that lovely, big, warm country sound with the simple and warm songs. And that's, that's the kind of thing we were trying to write as well. And I think, uh, Mike Scott has even said that uh, a bang on the ear was influenced by I Used to Lover. So we might have had a bit of oh, a bit of cross pollination okay. going on. Yeah, yeah. Because Mike Scott produced I Used to Lover, didn't he? In 17. In 17, yeah. sorry. Yeah, in 17. Yeah. If you're the bigger band at the time, whenever there's a younger band or an up and coming band, of course, you're going to be influenced by their music because you will find things in their music that you don't have. And you'll say, wow. I love the way they're doing that arrangement or I love the way they do the melodies or whatever. So it will, as you said, the cross-pollination always happens. Absolutely. It? And uh, it's always nice to have a good support act. Well, you need it for, for, the good, for the good of the show and the good of the audience. That's important. And we were very often able to have local tomb acts uh, on tour with us in Britain and around Ireland. And it wasn't just because they were from Chuma, it was because they were good enough to entertain the audience. And that's that's why they were there. And I used to always like to have have the local lads around on, on tour because the Saw Doctors had had a kind of a routine where we'd be on tour in, at certain times of the year and you'd be pretty much repeating the same towns and venues. And it was always nice to have fresh eyes and fresh ears uh, on, on the road with you and, and going around seeing things with new eyes because... It, it would be easy enough to say, oh, here we are again and just slip into a a routine where you, where some people just say, oh, yeah, I, I know this place. I know this town. I know this venue. And that's it's easy. But when there's yeah. when there's new young ideas and young eyes and fresh ways of looking at things, which is it always helped me keep fresh in my own head as well, which was good. Can I ask you when when you were on tour I'd say you'd have local bands with you and everything? Did it was it also a way of, you know, feeling like more grounded? Because I can imagine, you know, when you play Glastonbury and some festivals, you'll meet other bands whose heads are in the clouds and you know, you you'll meet the nicest of people, but you'll also meet some assholes and some egomaniacs. So I'm sure having local bands kinda of kept you grounded, no? Well it it certainly would. Um but uh, we'd be fairly grounded anyway. I mean we we never met many big bands or anything like that at all, really. That was we were always a bit peripheral in that sense. But um, it was always nice to have the locals. And, and of course, their families would, if they were supporting us in Britain, their families might say, oh, geez, we'll go over and they're playing in Glasgow now or they're playing in London or there's our excuse. And a big gang would arrive over from Chum for a particular gig or two. And it'd be a great occasion. Like, and uh, that was always a good 
that was great because it, it benefited you in that way because you always had a follow and then that would come with you sometimes and everything. Oh, That's yeah, great. just the excitement of... Like, a lot of the time a gig is... is one of the best things about a gig is it's an excuse for you to go somewhere uh, and that's and that's good yeah, enough yeah, you know yeah. I mean uh, and yeah yeah that's, that's a good thing one thing I read there actually I was looking at something the other day about you was that what you you said that when you used to play in the when you used to go over to the English cities for example Manchester London these places you didn't try and primarily focus on the Irish clubs you, you kind of played outside them as well because you didn't want to get caught in that kind of like just that vacuum of the Irishness. You you wanted other nationalities to hear you, and so you didn't get trapped in that whole Irish niche. Yeah, no? we we always saw ourselves as a rock band with an Irish accent rather than an Irish an Irish band first. We that's the way we we were hoping that the if we played in the in the venues where rock bands normally played, that we could that the Irish people would follow us there, and that we would also get some of the people who would normally go to those venues anyway. Now, when you start off, when you go abroad first, sometimes the Irish centres are are your first uh, port of call because they have to be because that's the only place that people know who you are. And um, and you get a great following. It's your life. Yeah, and you get a and you get a, a basic following from people that 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 know who you are and then they're with you and Hopefully, then you can move on to the the slightly bigger venues, but it takes a bit of persistence, and that's one thing we were was we yeah. were persistent. We went to Britain time and time again, and managed to gain a, a few more people every time. I would imagine, you know, for any act, if if you're an immigrant in a country, and of course a band comes over to play, and they're from your country, you're going to want to see them because. They're bringing a piece of home with them, you know, and especially if you were playing in London and there was Irish immigrants or Tum immigrants there, and they were delighted to see you and it was like nostalgia and everything all rolled into one gig, no? Well, a lot of the time uh, in, a, in a city like London or Dublin, there's so many uh, rural Irish people live in those cities. And obviously when we'd be there, there's so many Tum people live there and, and they would use our gig as a kind of a reunion, a chance for a whole load of people to get together and have a drink and have a bit of crack, which is great as well. Like, but yeah. of course, which is good. Of course, that would be in the likes of Dublin and London, maybe Manchester to some degree, but then Glasgow, Sheffield, you know, uh, maybe Birmingham to some degree, but Manchester, Liverpool, they they would they wouldn't have the same um, concentration of rural Irish immigrants as. Not nowadays, anyway, or not in our generation. Can I ask you, when you be doing like the the club scene and the the gigs in with London and Manchester, kind of the two biggest Irish places, or London was London, the biggest? Birmingham, Manchester. London, yeah. Birmingham, yeah, yeah. And uh, Liverpool as well, but but you know. And Liverpool, yeah. There's always Irish people everywhere, but but a, a lot of the places then we would go to would would be very very English, like we used to go to Norwich. We used to go to Leamington Spa. Uh, we used mm. to go to the Cardiff as well, of course. Go to Wales and Newcastle, and we did we were amazing tour and so many friends. And I have to say, uh, whenever we left Ireland and went to England, we we never received anything but wonderful hospitality from the English people. It was lovely. 
That's great. That's brilliant. It's yeah. good to hear that. That tour and then when you were in, in England, but was it very different or much the same when you'd go to the States? The States was pretty similar. We had to start in the States with, with the completely Irish audience because, like I said, nobody else knew who we were. <clears throat> we were lucky we'd had the uh, hit with I Used to Love Her in Ireland. So the Irish immigrants did know who we were in places like New York and Boston and Philly. And we started with them and again, we were persistent and we kept going back and people liked the gigs and they brought their friends the next time and that just kept going as well. So we we weren't, we didn't have a big media presence abroad and we really relied on people bringing their friends more than anything else in, in many ways. Yeah, yeah, word of yeah, mouth and, and everything. It was yeah, a network. So it was a slow build. But in a lot of ways, if a friend of yours tells you it'd be a good gig to go to, uh, or if you read it in the paper that it'd be a good gig to go to, you're more likely to believe your friend than the newspaper. So it's kind of the most of course, solid yeah, recommendation. Yeah, word of mouth is a great thing because if someone says, oh, I saw this new band and they're really good, you know, you could, you'll say, oh, I must go and see them. But if you were reading Hot Press or one of these and they say this band is a great life band, you're not so sure because you're you're talking to somebody or you're listening or reading something that you, from a person you don't know. So that validation from someone you know always counts for a lot more, doesn't it? It does. Sure. And we'd be, we'd be coming back next year and they'd say, well, they're coming here again now. Why don't you come with us this year? And we really did build up an audience over the years by, by that. Like, and uh, we, I mean, we loved it. That was really good. And there's one thing that you still have, like the the record in Ireland for I Used to Love Her, no? So we believe. Uh, other people claim it as well. Some people say it's a woman's heart. Some people say it's put them under pressure. I don't know. Uh, I think I Used to Love Her is, is possibly the biggest sensing, but I don't, I don't know who keeps the records and I haven't seen it officially published anywhere. So I can't say for sure. When you look back at all your hits and your songs, I mean, you had 18 top 30 singles and a couple of top 30 singles in the US or in the UK. So, I mean, you had a great, um, like the hits were really coming, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, we had a great, uh, we had a great few years. And then there was other years then that were kind of fallow and we weren't as creative as we had been. Uh, but we always had the show. We always had the gig that people liked. And we always had the songs that we had already. So. Was there more pressure, you know, when when you wrote, let's say, I used to love her or N17 and those songs become successful? Did you feel more pressure to write the next hit single or you just did it naturally and didn't give a damn about it? It's hard to know. We were busy and we were doing our best and you're always writing songs and sometimes you write a load of them and they don't work. You never know until you play them in front of an audience and some of them, some of them you think are great and they don't work at all and some of them uh, you're just messing with and they connect immediately. So you're always, but I think we probably were more creative in our earlier career. Like like a lot of acts, it's, it's a natural enough thing. It's, yeah, it's hard yeah, yeah. to keep it up. It, it doesn't matter if you're an actor, or musician or singer, you have golden moments and you have moments when you, you're more creative or, or also it's the right time for that creativity or that song. Because the thing is with the music scene, the way it's changed, some songs that were hit 10, 20 years ago might not be hit at all now because the culture is different. So as you said, songs like Put Them Under Pressure and, you know, those kind of songs, at that moment in time, people wanted that and they loved it. Yeah, and it takes really great artists to be to be really good early on and stay that good. It, it, it takes uh, an awful lot of creativity, an awful lot of talent 
and an awful lot of persistence. And like Porrick Stevens is like that now. He's still writing songs. He's still writing great songs. And it's funny because the first time I met Porrick, he was the manager of Blaze X when they were rehearsing up in the youth club in 1979. And he's a bit older than us at the time. He still is, of course. But in some ways now, he's younger than any of us because he's the one that's kept up the creativity and kept the the consistency of coming up with new things all the time. So that's why, for me, it's a a real joy to be playing with him. Yeah, and you said there a while ago about being, like, pushing people on and supporting. But Porrick was great in that sense because he... I mean, he was involved in so many different ways with all those different bands and yourselves, whether it be through songwriting or through the management. He always had his one finger in one pot and another in another. And so he was really, really interested in every part of it. Yeah, and he knew how things worked way back when we hadn't a clue. We didn't know what we needed or how anything would be done. And he just had a bit of experience of played in bands in the 60s and then had played in London over in in, the when he emigrated over there. So he knew how how music and the business of music kind of worked and and how bands could get around. And it was a lot of Porrick's great ideas that got the Saw Doctors off the ground. He said, you know, we have to do it. We need to do a residency in Galway do and establish an audience and, you know, a new audience in the city and, and, and get... Uh, and a residency is a great thing for a young band as well because it means you you establish a relationship with an audience and you also get better. The more gigs you play, you get better. You don't. Yeah, you get sharper and better. Yeah. Yeah, you'll never get better rehearsing. No, 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 that's the thing. Rehearsal's great, but once you start gigging and once you start kind of setting the gear up and getting ready and making mistakes, you know, that, that's how you get better is just by playing. And um, the the thing is like that, when you're doing a residency, you can kind of get into a groove then and people are like, wow, now they, they were good a few months ago, but now they're really shit hot. They're really good, you know, and that's great. Yeah, and you it? have that chance, like I was saying earlier, where people say, well, these boys are good now. You, you might come with us next week or, you know, that kind of thing. It gives people, it, it, you establish uh, something, you know. How did it come about, let's say, with, with Ollie, your manager? How did that, when you started out then, did he come to you or did you go to him about management? Did you say, we need a manager? It, it just kind of happened in so far as the people I knew in the entertainment department in college, Porrick Bourne and Tony Killing, were friends with Ollie. So I I kind of developed the same relationship with Ollie, whereas if he was if he was putting on gigs for the arts festival, I'd do the tomb run with the posters and the tickets as well. So I got to know Ollie through that. Okay. And then, then after I finished college, I was doing nothing. And I got a call from Porrick Bourne to say um, that he and Ollie and a few more people were setting up a social employment scheme. So if I could sign on the dole, I could then sign off the dole and become part of this social employment scheme. And what okay. this social employment scheme was, the, Start of Machnus. Oh, yeah. really? So at that point in time, I joined Machnus and that was the start of it. And I got to know Ali a bit better through that. And I ended up living in the house with him. So when we went on tour, we had to get a loan out of the bank and we needed a guarantor. Ali was our guarantor for it. So when we came back from the Waterboys tour in England, we owed the money. So Ali got us a few gigs. So we'd earned the money back to pay the loan back. and. <laughs> how it happened it fell into place he was working the head so that well, was just yeah. 
literally into place. It was like, geez, yeah. And Ollie, Ollie always liked the band, and he had been a, a kind of a supporter of us from from day one. So, it was a natural enough thing for him to want other people to like the band, which is a very good start as a manager. Well, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because you know, you, as you said, sometimes there's some great bands out there. But the, if if you don't have that someone as well to point you in the right direction sometimes, or even through contacts or who they know, I mean, it's much more difficult. So if you have someone who is a friend and can be a good manager and say, listen, we should do this or we should move in that direction, it mean, it's, it, it can be like 50% of your career, no? Well, I think it's very important for creative people not to try and be doing everything. Uh, some people can manage it, and I think there are exceptions and fair play to them. But I think in general, you're better off to concentrate on the music and the creativity of it and let somebody else deal with the, the organization of it and the business of it, because it can that can take up so much energy and time and you could just end up not enjoying what you're doing. Uh, what are not enjoying what you should be doing and not doing enough of what you should be doing. What you should be doing. You know, at, at this stage now, obviously with COVID and everything, can you see the thought actors going out playing again? Are you on a kind of an, an indefinite hiatus? Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, um, when, you know, if you if you build something out of Lego, um, you can take it apart, take the house apart and five years later you can come back and put it back together again. The sh- The pieces are all the same, but Humans aren't, and I think we've all changed since the Saw Doctors stopped playing. And and to put us back together again... When did you stop? We stopped really in 2013, and then we did a tour in 2016, 2017, just one small tour. But um, we, we haven't done anything since. We haven't really gone around. I think we're just different people now. And for me, I think maybe trying to go back to the Saw Doctors will be trying to turn the clock back you know it's uh, if if you start a fire or you get you get a vehicle running you know it's it mightn't be perfect or it might have a lot of imperfections about it but it's it's easier to keep it going but like if you if you stop it it takes so much more energy to to refire it up or get it moving again it's uh, i think it, it can be impossible and things change in people's yeah, lives people things change. change you know i mean when i look back on it now uh, it's not so much remarkable for me that the Saw Doctors stopped. It's remarkable that we kept going for as long as we did. <laughs> <laughs> you 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 look at it from the, the glass half full kind of way. Yeah. You're like, I, I'm not surprised we stopped. I'm surprised we kept going for so yeah, long. <laughs> it was an amazing uh, amount of time. It was um, 25 years nonstop. Can I ask you this question then? When you stopped, right, did you say, okay, we're stopping, or did you just, like, finish the tour and left people guessing? How, how did you kind of do it? Because I'm sure you'd get people saying, oh, you can't be stopped, you have to keep yeah, going. Yeah, well, we were guessing ourselves. We just knew we had to stop and take a break, and it, it was going to be indefinite. And the one thing we never wanted to do was, you know, say we're finished, and then say, oh, geez, we'd actually like to come back, but now we have to do a comeback tour. I mean, we just... That's the main thing we really want to avoid is ever having to say we're doing a comeback tour, you know. So if we were ever to do it again. You didn't do an Eagles like the final farewell tour or anything. You didn't kind of, no, we don't. you didn't do anything like that. That's the most thing to avoid. So by the fact that we don't uh, call it a day, it means that if we do actually feel like play, ever playing again, you know, which is probably getting more and more unlikely as time passes, at least we wouldn't have to say we were doing a comeback tour. 
Yeah, because I, I never looked at it that you had finished. I just looked at it like you took a break, and of course, breaks can get longer and longer. But I always kind of felt like, ah, oh, they'll probably go back in a few years. And, you know, it's kind of like we're saying with Oasis, you know, there'll be like people are saying, will they ever get back together? And they'll be like, oh, if they give them 20 million, maybe they'll get back together. But some, you know, nobody ever knows because it, you can never say never because a day could come in the future when something could happen or you sit down for a pint with those lads and you say, Jesus, let's do another tour, you know. Yeah, uh, for me, I think I, I look at Bruce Springsteen as an amazing model and it, he's all he, he's back. He's at it now. He's bringing the East Street Band back together. But he's a new album. And uh, for me, I think if you are to do something, you have to be current and you have to be new. You can't be a kind of... a Natural History Museum band, where you just go, yeah, go into your glass case and say, "This is, this is, we're doing what we used to do." You know, I don't. I think uh, if you're involved in any creative activity, it has to make itself new and current, and and have that energy about it, uh, in order to be, to be worthwhile. I think, and uh, you know, so if we were able to do that, maybe, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and and it could, but that's what could happen too. You never know. It could be, you know, things can change in the sense that the songs you're writing could change, and someone has a different idea. And I suppose nobody ever knows. We we don't know what's coming in a few weeks, never mind a few months or years. You know. So tell me. Um, so in 2013, was it then you 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 kind of got involved with the Cabin Collective? Tell us about that. Yeah, that didn't work at all. So much talent. No. Why not? It didn't have whatever a band needs, the, whatever the X factor is, whatever that bit of magic chemistry is. It didn't have it. I mean, Keith Mullen, such a talent, amazing songs, great singer. Noli MacDonald, the same, such a talent, amazing songs, great singer, great, great musicians, Dave Clancy and, oh God, with Avian and Ricky. And, oh, you know, we're just a brilliant band. You were like a super yeah, group. It, you were like a super group. it just group. didn't. Uh, gel, it didn't click, it just didn't work. Well, that it's a bit like the English football team, you know, sometimes every one of them playing on their own are outstanding in whatever team they're with, but when you put them together, that chemistry isn't the same either, so and maybe for each one of them, you're trying to recreate something that's already been done, you know, and and it's hard to do, so you can never, you can never be sure if, if it's going to work or not. Yeah, and it just felt like there was Keith to do a song, Noli do a song, I do a song, Keith to do a song, Noli do there was it felt like uh, uh, a separate act, three separate acts rather than and uh, yeah, and it's amazing, like I said, you can you could say all the songs are really good, you could say all the musicians are really good, it's put Cone on the bass as well. And it was all it was there was quality, but the it had no magic. So, you know, I've 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 seen bands that had very little quality but a lot of magic. <laughs> You know, the funny thing about it is, I suppose, with any group, when you have, you know, there can be an amazing singer, an amazing guitarist, and the other lads mightn't be as good or an amazing drummer. But the thing is, it's the whole thing as a unit that makes it gel and makes it stand out. But sometimes when you have really everybody who's in the band is really good and really talented, then it doesn't always mean the band is going to be magic. No, and very often it means the opposite. <laughs> You know, there's very yeah. few. Yeah, there's too much talent. The Traveling Wilburys would be one of the few supergroups you would say that really gelled and 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 made things happen. And uh, but but generally, it's it hard. is. And and people who have people need 
things in common to be a, a good in a band together. And it's very hard to define what that is. You, you know it when you see it. Yeah, and the, the thing is, like we were saying earlier, the whole idea of bands, it's very difficult at the best of times because you're when you grow up with fellas in a band, you kind of just take each other for granted and you know each other and you know each other's moves and everything they do. But when you come together then with another band, you have to deal with all these personalities and, you know, some good and some bad. And it's hard work sometimes. And you have to rein in your own personality and you have to, you know, you might say, oh, well, this is what we do in the other band. And they might say, oh, this is what we do in my band. And it's hard. It's very difficult. Yeah, and you can put two great songwriters together and they might they might, might be able to write anything of any note, whereas two very Midland songwriters who just have some kind of an understanding with each other can come up with something special. It's, it's And it's uh, sharing your ideas and your um, musical ideas and your thoughts and your emotions. And all, it's a very intimate kind of a thing. And you have to have... It is. You have it to have is. a certain, um, uh, whatever, openness, an openness and a chemistry yeah. and, a, and a common goal and a common background. And, and trust. Trust, and trust is the word. That's, that's exactly what you need. Yeah. yeah. Because the, the thing is, like, when you sit down to write a song, I know myself, if I'm sitting down and I get an idea for a song, and I'll say to my wife or whatever, what do you think of that? And I always say to her, don't pay attention. It's a bit of mumbling now or whatever, you know. It sounds bad, but this is where it's going. But you can kind of trust that they're not going to laugh at you and say, what's that shit, you know? So the thing is, when, when you're in a band and you're, you're, you're with a so another songwriter or whatever, that's what you get. They don't judge you. They don't say, what's that rubbish? Because you say, no, no, no. They can see where you're trying to yeah, go. Yeah, they can you know? suggest how you might get there as well. Mm, exactly, exactly, yeah. So so when after, let's say, the Cabin Collective, or, or you know, after you finished touring with the Soul Actors, then you went touring with Antho, Antho Thistleway, uh, yeah. didn't you? That was funny. I, I, I just wanted to keep touring and playing, and, and we decided, Anto encouraged me to do it, and uh, I found it very interesting. It was an interesting experiment. It worked really well. The gigs were brilliant. But I could yeah. never feel um, comfortable, a hundred percent comfortable as the main singer. I don't rate myself as a singer, and I always felt that what I was able to bring as the lead singer or the main singer of an act just was barely ever, if if ever, enough. Like, but I have to say, I enjoyed the gigs, and the gigs, even though I may say so myself, the gigs were very good. And I loved it. Yeah. Would you do a lot of, would you do a lot of Sword Actor songs or different songs or Waterboy stuff? Yeah, we did a lot of, I, I kind of modified a lot of the Sword Actor songs. Um, I was never a singer. And for the yeah. first two albums in, with the Sword Actors, it was never even a question that I would sing a song. And then Hey Rap would, became a song and I wouldn't call that singing. You know, that's shouting. Well, it, it still did enough. It did, it did well. But Davey used to always say to me, he said, you'll be able to sing, he said, but don't be trying to sing like me. You'll never be able to sing like me, he said, and there's no point in trying. So he used to encourage me, and because of that, I got a, a couple of songs going that ended up being in the Saw Doctor set. And then people would see me singing a few Saw Doctor songs, uh, like Tommy Kay's Easy, Gold and Me All, the, one, the ones yeah, that suited yeah. myself. Yeah. And, and, yeah, I, yeah, and I think yeah. because I was mainly introducing the songs and talking to the audience, I kind of I kind of overshot what people perceive 
my talents to be. So, so <laughs> I'm in a situation now where people see me on stage and they associate me with that thing they saw at the Saw Doctors gig. Yeah. And they think, sure, he was singing Go and Mayo, he's singing Tommy Cage, sure, I'm sure, why can't he sing N17 and Green and Red Mayo? And I can't. I'm not able to sing those songs. I've tried to modify them. Would you sit down and say, okay, I, I'm going to sing that. I have to change the key of that song now because I can't sing it that range or it's different. Would you have to modify them that way? Well, that'd be a start. But then even if even if I change the keys, there's those songs I can't sing. I can't. They don't work except the way Davey sings them. And, and not everybody, it's hard to explain that to people. Not everybody can understand that because as I said, they saw me on the stage. They saw me singing songs. They saw me with, associate me with that experience. So I have to kind of live with that uh, overestimation by some people of what I'm able to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's my own fault. <laughs> yeah. But did you find when you didn't have Davey there then, when you were playing with Anto, was your confidence low at the beginning? Were you thinking, Jesus, I can't well, do I this? Well, I had to find a different way of of entertaining the people. So I made up a lot of stories yeah. and I used to spend a lot of time T- t- doing long introductions to songs so okay. that I would bring people in like that and and that worked you tell them the history yeah, or maybe stuff. a funny story or whatever and and I worked I worked at that and I, I thought a lot about that and that did work as a show it, like I said it, it was it was a show that worked but you would always have somebody not always but very often you'd have somebody at the end of the gig saying oh do N17 or do green and red and mayo, and you can't at that point in time. You can't explain to them. Look, I don't have the voice for it. It's, you know. So, like I said, it's my own fault. I'm in that situation, but I had to try and distract away from that as much as possible. And I did that with the with the other songs and the stories as well. And like I said, it did work. That was good. I mean, because you know, I I I remember years ago sitting. I used to love Travis. You know, and I remember seeing Fran Healy. And he was, you know, doing this thing with two or three other songwriters. And they were explaining the stories of the songs and how they were written. And they might have only played three or four songs each, you know, but the stories were as interesting. And you were like, oh, right, that's how that song came about or that was the origin. So, I mean, that's also a great show, no? Yeah, it can work. And and, uh, as I said, it did work. But I always felt that I was just hanging in there as as the main singer. So... uh, I just I couldn't keep doing it, even that even though I did enjoy it and I had great fun with Anto. We toured Russia. You toured yeah. Russia. Wow. I was going to say, how long did you tour for? Uh, we did like myself and Anto did Scotland, and we did England, and we did the States a couple of times, and then a friend of Anto's uh, organised us to go to Russia in the January 2015 in the middle of winter. So that was an amazing Jeez. experience. And, and where did you play in clubs? Yeah, or? tiny little bars, clubs. Uh, just little folk venues. We did about seven or eight gigs. We played in the yacht club of some very wealthy uh, suburb of Moscow on the shores of the Volga, where people, we were just their kind of entertainment for the Friday night, the entertainment there every... Like, doing a gig in Russia was amazing because language went out the window. They Some of them had very basic English, but it was as good as nothing. So it was an amazing education as to how we can entertain these people. 
So it came down to yeah. the simplest of songs, the simplest of melodies, and a bit of clowning. Yeah, a bit of messing. A bit of messing. Danto playing the sax, going down through the audience, the silly dancing in Tommy K. Anything that we could do that would be visual or like nurse, the simplest of songs, the more nursery rhyme it was, the better. And we, it worked as well. Just having fun yeah. with them, having fun with the One audience. One of the gigs we did was yeah. we we were playing in this theatre and it was about, it was like the Town Hall Theatre in Galway. It was about that size. And there was a jazz singer over from America with a big band. And we were on first. <laughs> like, it was bananas. And we had a, we had an interpreter on the stage. Wow. So for my... <laughs> it was like the Eurovision. Yeah. So for my stories, I would say a line, stop. Mm. She would interpret it for the audience. Then sometimes I'd come to a punchline and maybe a quarter of the audience would laugh because that many people might have a bit of English. And then she would deliver the punchline and then the other people would laugh. <laughs> Oh my God! It was like two stories in one, wasn't it? <laughs> it was so funny. Oh God, it was mad. That's, and, and maybe you were thinking this story doesn't seem as funny now with the translators. <laughs> and I don't know what she was saying. <laughs> she could have been. She, she was probably thinking this fella. The story's not funny. I'm going to make it better. <laughs> but but the experience was amazing. Like the 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 uh, we did. We did the night train from Moscow to St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg back and over, like amazing. Like we went down to the, the middle of the night and all you can see out the windows is snow and there's this dining car and we're down there having uh, mackerel and spuds. Or no, the herring and spuds is a <laughs> big uh, one. And herring drinking and vodka in the, the Russian way, you know, and uh, it was just absolutely wow. But it must have been some crack though. Yeah, it, it was crazy. It was absolutely so foreign. But the Russian people were beautiful and the food was beautiful. And the woman who looked after us, Zhenya, she she came with us. She organized the tour and came with us. And only for her, I, I, we couldn't have done it because language, the language barrier is serious. No, because it, the thing is, when you're in Europe, if you're in France or Spain, even if you don't have those languages or whatever, you can get by because they speak a lot of English. But in Russia, yeah, you'd be could be in places where there's no English at all. Yeah, and they have different ways of doing things as well, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. So that that was a whole experience playing with Anto. And then, so you, like, once you kind of finished that, when did you start playing with Porik then? When, how did that come about? Playing again with yeah, him? Yeah, I just said to Porik, I said, I'm doing nothing. Do you fancy doing a few gigs? And she, she said she would, might as well do try a couple. And we've kind of been at it ever since. And I'm more, like I said, I'm more comfortable in the supporting role. I'm very, very comfortable in that role. And I just I just want people to hear Parik's songs because enough people haven't heard enough of them. Yeah, yeah. I was looking on his website there a few weeks ago, actually, you know, and stuff. I mean, he's great, he's great stories and everything. And the the thing is, he's had a really interesting life. I, I'm, I'm probably hoping I'll get him on this podcast in, in a few weeks or months or whatever, because I think he's such an interest, interesting story to tell. And I mean, he's some great songs and he's been he's been pivotal in some of your early songs, hasn't he? And and he's uh, right now it's kind of coming full circle with you because you're going back to the source. Well, I'm doing like I said, I'm doing the same thing as I've been doing since I was 15. I just I'm hanging around with talented friends of mine trying to give them a hand to get hurt. <laughs> 
you're like, yeah, you're the, they're like, who's that fellow over there? Oh, he just helps us out a little bit, you well, know? That is it, like, you know, and I love it. Yeah, don't undersell yourself because the thing is like that, it's, um, if you weren't there, they'd, they'd miss that. And, and I'm sure like that, Porek has found that great chemistry he had before again, and you're doing this gig and it's, you know, you're playing together and it's working out great, no? Oh, it is. It's a, it's a great show. It's, it's a low-key show, it's a small audience. It's more like the me, Leo and Anto show, of course. It's it's more like a little theatre yeah. show rather than a big a big gig. Like it's a, it's a listening show. Have you done, like now, obviously, in this COVID time, have you done any virtual gigs or is that something you don't like? We were going to. We actually, before the first lockdown was announced, we did an experiment on that Facebook Live thing. And then the following day, the whole world seemed to be doing it. So we stopped. You get a couple of projects from the, the Town Hall Theatre, from the Saw Doctors, ex-drummer Fergal McGrath, he manages Town Hall Theatre. And they had a project where they were sending five different artists to visit five different people in nursing homes. And you had to visit them, interview them, and come back with okay. a piece of art. So myself and Porrick did one in Chum in Green Park and uh, interviewed a very interesting woman who had moved back from New York. Porrick wrote a song. We did a video. Evan Kelly, a friend of ours in Chum, gave us a hand doing the video, putting it together. Yeah. And uh, that worked really well. And now we've done a second one. And uh, we've collaborated with the Screaming Orphans, the four sisters uh, in Donegal. Oh. So we're hoping to do a gig now in December, all yeah. going well. And they're hoping to come down and do it with us in uh, the town hall. So that'll be a virtual gig. Brilliant. If it goes ahead. You know, when you're talking about virtual gigs, like I'm a big Metallica fan and I turned on Facebook today and uh, I I saw they were doing, they have this thing all within my hands foundation and it's basically raising money for charities and stuff. And so they were doing some of their songs acoustically. But what was really interesting was they were in a big room and they had all these screens up and on the screens was all the fans from around the world the videos of them so like it looked like it looked like a, a concert place with faces do you understand so that that so the the some one of those software companies had put up all these screens for them so they were playing and all the faces were looking at them but, the, but all the people were at home so it was like it was like a virtual um audience literally watching you did it work it looked okay because you have to, if you go on facebook look for it and it's interesting because I think what they do is they they give that they, they, you had to buy the tickets obviously because to support the charity. But once you were on that Facebook Live or whatever platform they did it on, you probably paid you know five or ten or whatever they charged. But then your face could be in the screen and they probably rotated it. But I, it was different. I was like, this is interesting because now that we're in this time of virtual gigs, you're we're playing, right? And you can see messages coming up on the screen and stuff, but you can't see the fans. So in this way, if you can see the fans, like I see you now in this video and you see me, so it makes a difference. So for them, maybe looking at the fans, it makes it feel like a more normal yeah, gig. At, at least you have something to aim at. Technologically, it's hard to do, I imagine. So, like, they're a big band, so they can afford to put that on. I mean, but for smaller bands, trying to have all the video faces of all the fans on is quite difficult, I imagine. Yeah, it's uh, it's just hard to beat people being in the same room. No, for sure, for sure. And, and, yeah, and I think as well, Stadium Rock is a kind of a flawed concept as well. It's 
yeah. it's, it's for yeah. people that just have too many tickets to sell, really. Did you ever hear the one about Billy Joel that they say that Billy Joel got so sick of rich people being in the first two rows at his concerts, he he wouldn't, um, what he would do is keep the, those tickets and he would get all the people in the cheap seats to come down because he said, there's nothing worse than doing a gig and having somebody who's not really a fan watching you and he said, so I always bring the fans, the real fans down to the front and they can enjoy my music, not some rich guy with his trophy wife who doesn't know half my songs. Yeah, that's a great idea because the bigger the event is, the more peripheral people it attracts and people that are on only peripherally interested in the music. And that's that's a, yeah. that's a great idea. I mean, I, I think of Springsteen there, he's after doing the Broadway show in a theatre. I'm sure that's the kind of place he would love to be playing with the E Street Band, but he can't. Yeah. And yeah, he just can't. He, yeah. he can't He can't come to Dublin and do the Olympia, but I bet in my heart and soul that that's what he'd love to do. Yeah, I mean, that because you become this huge entity and it's, it's hard to do smaller gigs then, isn't it? It's very different. Yeah, sound is, music has a very physical quality to it and the, the further you throw it, the the less power it has. It just, it starts to dissipate. You know, it's, I think... Who does it very well, I think, is Eddie Vedder. So he does the whole Pearl Jam, big gigs, but then he does a lot of these low-key concerts where he's just playing a ukulele or whatever. So I think he manages to balance it, you know? Yeah, because no matter how good your 50,000, 80,000 Crow Park technology is, you're, it's basically Bruce Springsteen shouting out into the sky like it's... Com- yeah, compare yeah, it yeah. to the Olympia and where you can see everybody's face and the sound the building is designed for sound and you're going to hear everything the band plays uh, again no matter how good a sound system outdoors is I don't know you just to me you just hear primary colours you hear the drums and you hear the singer and a bit of guitar and a bit of bass you don't hear the the details the subtlety of the thing you know it's it, it's a flawed art form yeah and the thing is now, I mean, you know, the technology of these huge screens and everything, you're, they might make you feel closer to the band, but you're basically watching a video screen. So if you're in Slane and you're halfway up the back and you can see the video screen, you're not in touch with the band at all. You're so far away. No, it's, it's like I say, to me, the ultimate kind of a gig is like the Olympia, that kind of size uh, or smaller. I think if, once you go beyond, you know, three or 4,000, I, I think you're really stretching the experience because you're just you're too far away like you say why go out to, uh, and be in front of a stage and be watching a screen it's just it's not the idea like yeah yeah for sure um what I was going to say to you just one thing on your songwriting do you find now you're writing a lot of songs during the lockdown or or you're not I'm useless and uh, I'm writer's block or something whatever that I'm just no good at writing songs anymore I wouldn't know how to write a song the excuse I use is, is that I hang around a park and he writes so many good ones is that I don't need to write any but that is an excuse anyone will tell you that any of us that are supposed to be trying to write and are not writing it's our own fault and it's because we're not doing it, doing what we should be doing. And whatever that is, I'm not doing it. So uh, guilty, Your Honour. But I would hope, I would hope to start. I wrote a song last week, actually. It's no good, like, but at least I wrote something. Well, well it's funny, isn't it? Because um, it's funny, I hadn't written songs for, like, since when I moved over to Spain, you know, I had two young kids and, 
you know, I kind of, my life changed a little and, and I wasn't, and I found the music culture here wasn't that good. You know, I couldn't, I tried to fall into it, but it wasn't the same. It's a different kind of a thing to Ireland. And I fell out of the music then. And, and so I stopped kind of writing songs. <laughs> Guilty, says you. Yeah. I stopped writing songs. And I found then in the last few months, one day I just said, I'm going to start play music again and it wasn't even because of the lockdown just something in me changed and I started uh, kind of but what, what I did what I didn't do I didn't start writing new songs I started looking back at all the old demos and like loads of demos and that's one of the reasons I don't try too hard because I don't think you can force it I think it has to visit you rather than you have to just get into the humour somehow and uh, it's it's not something I'm able to recreate it just has to happen no, and the, the humor, that's a, it's a big part for it because you can try. I remember once years ago hearing Prince saying, oh, I have maybe 500 songs that are totally bad and they'll never see the light of day. But that's what it is. Sometimes you write rubbish. I mean, I'll pick up the guitar and I'll be like, oh, and I'll, I'll be in the mood to write a song, but nothing good will come out or I'll go, oh, that sounds like something else. But then one day something magical can happen. But I, as you said, that's the beauty of music isn't it like you could you could write a hit in 10 minutes without realizing it and then other times it could take you weeks to try and write a bad song yeah <laughs> you play it in front of people and they start going to the toilet yeah <laughs> they're like fillers aren't they those songs that the people go oh i don't like this song so much so come here you yeah you have your guitar will you play us a song i wasn't planning on it but sure why not why not fair enough fair enough I'm not going to make any requests. Let's do whatever makes you happy. Same old faces, same old streets, same old people is all you meet. Too long wait, standing round. I'm sick and tired of the same old town. Same old drizzle, same old rain. Same old walking back home again. Same old heartache lost and found The same old story, same old town I go out for a walk to see if there's news Rain on the path leaking into my shoes I do talk to myself, I'm my only best friend Sunday night, nearly Monday morning again Same old Monday, closed all day The farmers in their wisps of hay Same old hanging around the square The same old spoofers, the same old stairs Hey, you're welcome back, yeah Bang the door This Christmas time and the time before I don't like asking You're fairly wide You never give us the price of a pint I go out for a walk to see if there's news Rain on the path leaking into my shoes I do talk to myself, I'm my only best friend Sunday night, nearly Monday morning again Same old story, same old time You'd often wonder is the Years go past, why'd you ever bother going to Mass? Was it the fear of God or to find a wife or 
buying shares in the afterlife. best of tolls, I heard it there, the final journey up through the square, shop doors close and blinds come down, the same old story, same old town, and I do howl at the moon, I go bark in the docks, take off all me clothes, lie out in the bog, I do talk to myself, I'm my only best friend. Sunday night, nearly Monday morning again. Same old story, same old time. Same old faces, same old streets, same old people is all you meet. Brilliant. Brilliant. A good miserable one for a November night in June, Simon. That's that's great. That used to have an extra verse, didn't it, too, sometimes? Yeah, yeah. I do play around with it. You're very uh, observant. Yeah, that's that's very nice, isn't it? I mean, it's really nice, though, because that song is one of those songs that tells a, a story, doesn't it? I mean, it's one of those where you're saying about being observant, but it's observing everything that's happened around you in the town, isn't it? Good and bad. It's funny, like people live in small towns uh, like that, and they, they a lot of sometimes they feel like that. A lot of people sometimes feel like that, but even people who live in the big cities get a bit uh, tired of where they are as well. It's I think it's just part of the human condition. To there's the kind of the Faroe Hills or Green thing in the back of your mind. So come here, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go shortly. I I won't keep it too much longer. Yeah, so that was the thing. That was a very nice song and everything, and really nice. I enjoyed it. And 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 people will love to hear you singing again, you know. That's the kind of thing. They'll be like, Come on, Leo, you have to get back out in the road, you Do know. N17. <laughs> <laughs> Do N17. Was there always one song that you got sick of people asking you to play? Well, I never get sick of anyone asking you to play anything, because I think it's a great privilege that anybody would bother of. Of all the songs in the world that they'd ask you to play one of yours, like, but it's just what I, I did a couple of nights, I brought someone else up to sing it. <laughs> you know, if, if you want to hear it, you have to sing it, will come up, you know. And obviously, oh, there was one night it was a disaster, somebody came up and they, they were a worse singer than I was. But you know, disasters aren't bad at gigs, they're, they're, they all add up to the experience. Yeah, and I mean, you can look back on them with a, with a bit of nostalgia and say, remember that night that happened? and. Anything anything that's not smooth in a gig is memorable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So come here, Leo. I'm gonna I'm gonna finish up with you. I'm gonna just ask you one or two questions. You know, when you look back now at all the things you've done and achieved and everything, what what are the highlights for you? What's what's the things that you are most proud of? Well, I'd be trying not to look back too much. <laughs> Don't look over your shoulder. <laughs> um, I just I just delighted that um people uh, we had songs we were able to put songs together that people liked and got something out of enjoyed them and a lot of people tell you they had them at their wedding or they had them at their father's funeral or you know that songs connected with people was a lovely thing you know that's i think it's that simple really that's that was the idea from the start and we had a little bit of success at it so we were very lucky that's good because like you know the thing is with a band like the Saw Doctors, 
you brought a lot of joy to people like that. And, you know, as you said, you were very unique and very original in your sound. And the thing is like that, it's a great achievement or a great compliment when someone says, oh, we played your song at our wedding, we loved it, or we played at my dad's funeral. I mean, that that must bring a great feeling to you as a songwriter and musician. Well, I'm just delighted that it was of some use to other people. That's that's the whole thing, isn't it? When you write songs that you hope that they're... The reason I got involved in music was the joy and the fun that I got out of other people's music. So I just wanted a part of that and take part in the circus of it all go along for the ride and enjoy it while you're doing it yeah and we've been very lucky it's been uh, it's worked very lucky brilliant I'm going to tell you something now I'm going to ask you a question and, and you might be shocked by this one but I found it I found it I read somewhere that you'd love to live by the sea is that still true oh yeah more so now than ever really yeah I just love to I'd love to have a, I'd love to have a house where you could hear the waves I miss the sea now in lockdown. I, I've been going into swim in Galway just before the lockdown. I was nearly in every day. Is that something, though, that you you've, you ever thought, I'm going to move out of Chum, move to Galway and live beside the sea? I'd love to live in Galway, but I'd, I'd hate to leave Chum. I'm a, I'm a bit right. uh, I'm a bit divided on that one. You, you need a summer house in Galway. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's the thing. That's a, there's a bit of a problem there now. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the mad thing because in Spain here, I do laugh at that because you'll talk to someone from the south of Spain and they live 20 kilometers from the beach and they have a summer house at the beach and you're like, would you only live 20 kilometers away? And they'd be like, yeah, but one's one's the summer house and the other's the normal house. (laughs) So Tume is not that far from Galway, is it? (laughs) Well, somebody said to me, if you could afford a second house, where would you like to live? What city would you like to live? I said, Galway. Yeah, <laughs> not not Monte Carlo. <laughs> no, I mean I don't. I think Galway is brilliant, and I would love I would love to to have a place to stay in Galway. I have an arrangement with a friend of mine. Sometimes uh, she has cats, and when she, she when she leaves her apartment, uh, the cats need feeding. So sometimes we get to go in for a few nights and and uh, be in Galway. I love I love Galway. Cat Airbnb, isn't it? That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and we like cats as well. So. Maybe that's a whole new business, you know. You can look after somebody's cats while staying in their luxury apartment. Maybe I should advertise my services. Maybe a bit maybe more, you yeah. should. Cat maybe Airbnb. That... Yeah. <laughs> cat. It's cat. Like. Yeah, it's cat deer. Yeah. <laughs> and come here. So my last question for you. You know, what are your kind of aspirations and hopes for the future, Leo? I like. Would you, is there something that you'd love to do besides living by the sea? Is there something you'd say, I'd love to do that now? That's something I'm aiming towards. I'm not very ambitious at the moment. I'm just delighted to be healthy and, and enjoying life and being able to do what I'm doing. I'd love more people to hear Parik songs. I'd love to do more gigs, more places. Just get that, you know, do as much as of that as possible. Yeah, well, definitely, you know, you can give me all the relevant stuff and we'll point people in that direction you know we'll get them to listen to the podcast obviously and you know point you in the direction of you and Porg's gigs or upcoming gigs and uh, and obviously what you've done so far his albums are on spotify and other places as well so that's brilliant that's brilliant as well as your own as well as your own <laughs> Don't forget yourself. Don't sell yourself too short, you know. No, I, I, sold, I oversold myself. No, I'm, I, want, I have to go. I, I need a period of undersell. 
Yeah, people will be like, who is he talking to again? Yeah, it's a fella. He's gone now. He was a has-been. You know that Leo Moore now? He's 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 the anchor now for Porrick Stevens, but he's still a bit famous. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd like to be famous as Porrick's guitar player now. That's my, that, that's my next ambition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, come here. It was lovely talking to you. It was an interesting chat. And thanks. You too, Simon. Thanks a million. Thanks very much for the song. And I'm sure, you know, in a, in a couple of months or a year or whenever, we'll do this again and we'll talk about, there's so many other things I wanted to ask you and so many, I wanted to delve deeper into stuff, but I don't want to keep you here forever. So next time, till next time, we'll continue this chat, right? And it's funny, I was just thinking there, Simon, in this lockdown thing, I was thinking, we, we so many of us have been lucky. We're able to go to Spain every now and again and, we're walking around a lovely city. Myself and Eleanor spent a week in Grenada. It was beautiful. And, you know, now, now we can't go anywhere. So I'm walking around to him and thinking, what if somebody from Spain was here? Like, try and see it. Try and see this place with fresh eyes. Because we do tend not to not to look at our surroundings with, with uh, proper detail. I'd love to walk around Tune now and go for a pint and have a supermax. It'd be brilliant. By Jesus, the day will come with the help of God. Yeah, I mean, I'd love that because the thing is now here, you know, you, 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 we're, we're not trapped here, but it's very difficult to go home unless it's for an extended period. So we were even talking the other day about, Jesus, is there any way we could get home for Christmas? But the truth is, just with the whole quarantine and thing, and then the government kind of advising people not to come, we'd love to get home. But then when we'd get home, we don't know who would be allowed to see and, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. it looks like we're going to have to tough it out. And maybe Easter, you know, maybe Easter, we'd, we'd, and for my kids as well, you know, they're like, oh, can we go back and see the relatives and the family? But, so it's hard for everyone. I mean, as you said, it'd be nice to be in Spain, but it'd be nice to be in Ireland too. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, we all have to, wherever we are is good. Like. Yeah, that's it. And But, you know, the main thing is the moment with this thing is it's like a, it's like this silent assassin and we don't see it, but it's still doing damage and we just have to be resilient for a while and kind of keep the head down and, as you said, not go mad in the house and kind of find things to do, whether it's music, whether it's playing chess, whether it's, you know, painting the house or putting the roof in the shed like you're about to do. I mean, that's what you have to do, no? Just tough it out. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's all good. It's all good. No well, bother. come here, Leo. Thanks very much. Have a, have a lovely rest of the evening, and uh, we'll talk again soon. And it's a pleasure to come to you. Thanks a million, Simon. Thank you. Take care. Stay safe. Take care of you too. Thanks a million. Okay, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that interesting chat with Mr. Leo Moran from the Saw Doctors and from Tume. I really enjoyed it. It was good fun. We had a good laugh and I enjoyed Leo's song. I hope you enjoyed it too. Next week on the show, we will have Sharon Fitzmaurice from Curfin. Sharon is a holistic wellness therapist and uh, Reiki therapist as well. And Sharon will be talking about her life so far, her experiences and adventures. And she will also be talking about her books. She has written two books. The first one, Someone Please Help Me, So I Did. And now they have a new book called Awaken Your Wellbeing, which she has co-written with um other authors from around the Galway area. So that's going to be an interesting chat and I hope you join in and listen to what she has to say. So thanks again, everybody, and have a lovely weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.